Harry Gay. I am an activist, campaigner, community organiser, an occasional DJ. Um, but we're here today to talk about the Outside Project, and I've been volunteering with them since 2017 and a paid member of staff as a support worker and their campaigns manager uh, for about a year and a half now. As a homelessness charity for LGBTIQ people, the Outside Project is an organisation doing fantastic work on a number of levels. We met Harry Gay, a community activist who has previously worked with refugees and in local action groups. Homelessness has been a long neglected problem for decades. Cuts to social services and growing inequalities have seen numbers rise. Yet the coronavirus pandemic prompted funding from national and local government as it became imperative for the population to stay indoors. Yet, as we discuss, questions remain. What will happen beyond the pandemic? What about the hidden homeless? And if funding could be made available now, why was more not being done to house homeless people or to tackle the issues that see people pushed to the fringes of society? In this episode, Harry also discusses the particular challenges to the LGBTIQ community, which led to the founding of the Outside Project. Discrimination in the home is a particular consequence of homophobia, and LGBTIQ people face further challenges in accessing services. As well as being a campaigner, Harry is a DJ. As Pride celebrations take place in new and in reinvigorated forms around the world, we talk to Harry about the queer house party, which he has set up online with DJ friends to bring people together in these uncertain times. This is Future Heist, conversations with people making change. My name is Rena Neve-Smith. So the Outside Project was launched at Pride in 2017 by volunteers from the homeless sector to create an LGBTIQ plus shelter and community centre. Can you tell us the story of you getting involved? Yeah, of course. I think I'm first going to quickly just talk about the project because I, I wasn't there right from the beginning. But um, so in 2017, our director, Carla, they were working in the homeless sector and they were seeing lots of people not accessing services, basically, because of their identity. And this is to do with like a mistrust with mainstream services and that's in terms of staff but then sometimes with problems with other guests uh so it was just seeing lots of people that weren't accessing the services that they need to get themselves um uh, housing so that that was it and i remember the day it was jetford pride in 2017 and at the time i was a youth worker and the outside project carla and lake who i didn't know at the time uh, they had a little stand raffling off stuff, trying to raise awareness and money just before there was even a shelter. It was right at the beginning. And I went straight up to them. And I was like, I'm a youth worker. I want to be involved. And they were like, there's no project yet. Um, and then a few weeks later, I was also working in a bar and they came in because it was a fundraiser for them. And straight away, I was like, I want to work at the project. And um, yeah, as soon as we got enough money to buy a tour bus, it was status quo's old tour bus actually um to run a pilot of the first shelter from um i signed up as a volunteer um it was 
during yeah winter so it was like from november to january that we ran that first service and um it didn't have any electricity it was like our tour bus from the early 90s as well so it all had this horrible carpet interior but um what what it was was it was it was powerful and it was community we had everyone on that bus um who was coming from lots of different backgrounds you had people that were fleeing violence you had people that um had been kicked out of their family homes and we all just sat there playing uno every night and chatting and it was beautiful and as much as it wasn't fit for purpose basically what happened from that bus is we could prove that the service was needed it was full um so it was really really horrendous when we had to close the doors on the bus because we ran out of funding for that pilot but we just made us really determined to make sure that we secured a more appropriate space to be able to run the service from in the future. Part of the mission of the outside project is to help those within the LGBTIQ plus community who feel endangered, who are homeless, hidden homeless, and feel that they are on the outside of services due to historical and present prejudice in society and in their homes. I was reading that the LGBT Youth Commission on Housing and Homelessness, which was set up in 2016, found that as many as 24% of young homeless people are LGBT and 77% of those young homeless people who were surveyed stated that their LGBT identity was a causal factor in them becoming homeless. What makes LGBT people so much more at risk and does this affect their ability to to access services? Um, I think family rejection is a big part of that. Um, It's a unique experience to our community um, when people come out. I think if you're part of any other, or most other marginalised identities, basically your family unit are people that you see within yourself. But um, as I said, yeah, it's, it's a unique experience that happens when you come out, you can end up being rejected from people that are closest to you. Um, it does leave a lot of people in immediate danger of homelessness. Of homelessness, um, Albert Kennedy Trust at the beginning of the COVID nineteen crisis actually released something that said, "If you can delay coming out to your parents during the crisis, if you don't think it's going to end well, do that because it's so dangerous for some young people to be stuck in a house where they are not accepted, um, where they need to isolate, and um, basically are not." being treated well I in terms of the outside project we've been supporting people that um have been sent to our service that have been kicked out by their parents because they are LGBTIQ plus during COVID so that is um something that is extremely difficult for us to deal with mainly because the how dangerous dangerous it is at the moment just to be outside I think it is a specific problem for young people and that's where those statistics come from and there's amazing charities like albert kennedy trust that sort of support young people but the difference with the outside project is that the majority of our guests are over the age of 25 so it isn't just about being kicked out of your family home it's a lot of systemic reasons and problems that sort of carry on throughout life for example if we look back at the legacy that section 28 has left Section 28 is a piece of legislation uh, introduced by the Thatcher government that basically made it 
illegal for anyone in schools to talk about being, or just to talk about gay people, lesbian people, anyone under the umbrella of our community. Um, it, it was banned. Uh, so if from a young age you're taught that your identity is something that to an institution you can't talk about or people that you trust in power, like teachers when you're younger, you can't even discuss these issues. It leaves a long-standing mistrust of people not being able to, not feeling able to access services and ask for help when they need it. I, a lot of people that we work with aren't necessarily part of the street homeless community. A lot of the younger people we work with are part of hidden homelessness. And that basically um, makes up, is made up of people that are sofa surfing, that people that are squatting, people that are relying on survival sex, um, people that before all the venues were shut down would sleep in places like saunas or would go out to nightclubs and bars to find people to hook up with so they have a roof over their head. Um, and this all links into the fact that young people basically do have a mistrust for services and look for alternative things that are out there to keep a roof over their heads. And a big thing that we say at The Outside Project is a lot of our guests and people we support don't actually think that they are homeless enough to access our service. They think it's just for people that are on the streets, which we absolutely are as well, but think it's for people that are in complete crisis. But we always say, please just get in touch before you are in a place of crisis. Even if you're sofa surfing and your mates are starting to get annoyed because you can't move on and you've been stuck there for a month or so, that's the right time to contact us. You don't have to wait until you are on the street. Definitely, because it's true that we have misconceptions and we have images in our mind about homelessness, but it can take many forms. I wanted to ask about um, the shelter and community centre that Outside Project normally runs. Um, and obviously you're hosting virtual uh, meetups now. How successful have these been? So we have a permanent site. It's an old disused fire station, originally shut down by Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. Um, and we have been given that to operate the shelter out of. So we have a huge space downstairs. We have a small cafe, which is free of charge. And there's a support worker in there all day with a 24 hour service. Um, and we have a larger space, which is used for different groups, um, that want to have meetings and these could be closed meetings for example we have like a queer cancer support group we have survivors of domestic violence and groups like that who access the space um so yeah upstairs i'm just to say upstairs is the shelter and that's where the guests stay and at the moment they're safely isolating so that's that's what we normally do and the service we normally run um but obviously now we uh the shelter is still open but the community space and cafe that's what has been moved online so we've got two socials each week, which have been really, really successful, where there's always an activity. And those are on Monday and Wednesday evening. Um, and then you've also got the space every day. We have just little hangouts, which are a lot less formal. And people can just check in. And people from all around the country are using that just to hang out and just chat to people they wouldn't normally chat to as well, which is another really interesting thing that's come of this. It's brought people... Outside of our sort of London bubble, there's people all around the country who has been coming and joining in to that. So we also have all the different activist groups and community groups that were meeting at the centre. They can use the software that we have basically to uh, keep on meeting. So it's not ideal, but it is working. Under lockdown, the home has become a government mandated refuge for the population during a state of 
global health crisis. The government rolled out initiatives to house homeless people during the pandemic. For example, local councils have been given £3.2 million since March to house homeless people from central government. From your point of view, how successful have those initiatives been and what has the pandemic really looked like for homeless people? At the forefront in London of working with street homeless people um, have been two amazing organisations I absolutely adore and the Grassroots and Radical um, Streets Kitchen and Museum of Homelessness have been doing a lot of work on the ground and I always trust and look to them to really see what the situation is instead of just looking at what's being released by councils and governments. But I think we have to do recognise that initially the hotel um, policy that was put in place, it was successful, but once again, it was only successful for people that are street homeless. So it's a commission service to get people off the streets, which is something that is really important. But there is a much larger population of hidden homeless people that are living in squats, sofa surfing, or as I said before, survival sex. Um, people that access services like ours aren't really included in the hotel scheme that was set out by councils. So initially we kicked up a bit of a fuss because we weren't being included. Like our shelter wasn't given extra spaces in hotels for people from our community that need to isolate because they're sick or because they have nowhere to go or people that are living in overcrowded rooms or squats that can't actually keep maintain social distancing. So we had to fight hard and we campaigned with a... Uh, uh, an activist group in London called Voices 4 and they helped us kick off about not being given that space for our community as well um, which it was actually successful so the Greater London Authority have commissioned us to have a hotel now which is which is great so we can provide that space but I also really want to make the point that we can't confuse compassion with embarrassment and this is exactly the same thing that we saw happening during the 2012 Olympics or the Royal Weddings is that all of a sudden lots of homeless people that are homeless are being sweeped up and put in hotel rooms and housed. But it's not actually doing anything in terms of interventions into the longer term housing model. I think basically they want us to lose focus and attention of people that are homeless, which often does happen, and then they will move on. And I think that is interesting at the moment because this month the hotel scheme has now actually been scrapped and it's been scrapped behind closed doors. There's been no press coverage about it. Councils have been notified, but the public still think it's happening. The whole scheme in total costed about £3.2 million to run, meaning that street homelessness could be solved with this amount of money. Hotels are going to remain empty. It's not like people are visiting London at the moment, so it doesn't make sense to stop this scheme at this point just because the social distancing guidelines that are all very confusing have slightly changed. It's mi a minuscule amount of money in the grand scheme of things just to keep people safe. Um, and I think it's cruel. And I think also the government don't want to admit that solving street homelessness is this simple. I think ideologically that decommodifies the whole housing sector and it sort of shows that it can be done so easily, but they don't want to admit that housing is, in fact, a human right. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen now, but I think as I 
but I do know that I can always trust organisations like Streets Kitchen and Museum of Homelessness to get the actual picture of what is going on because they work very, very closely with the street homeless community and always know what's happening on the ground. I think also once you have street homeless people safe and in hotels and off the streets, it will give them more of a chance to be able to make positive changes, whatever they need. And I think that's also dangerous in terms of looking at the way that the Tory government ideologically thinks that society is a meritocracy. And if you give these people an actual chance to get on with whatever they need to do, I think it might just undermine that whole ideology of conservatism. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And it leads really well into my next question, actually. I wanted to talk about austerity. The number of homeless people in England has risen from an estimated 1,768 in 2010 to 4,266 in 2019. What has the impact of government cuts and austerity been on homelessness services? And has it disproportionately affected LGBTIQ plus people? We have seen since the Tories have been in power, which is a hell of a long time now, services have been completely stripped all around us and us working in support and homelessness sectors. So queer lives are only considered really during History Month or Pride Month. A flag is raised on a town hall or a road walkway is painted, but the rest of the year, no real effort is made to provide any basic services needed by our marginalised community. I think it's interesting because we are running a homelessness organisation. And I think in cities like London, where there is, a, at the moment, a mayoral campaign coming up, I think there is always going to be a push to get people off the streets and there's always going to be funding into services. Definitely not enough, but I think that it is politically quite an important thing to always have funding for. I don't want to say anything too obvious, but I, I think obviously austerity has had like decimated services. But I don't, I don't know enough to comment on whether it's been disproportionately affected LGBTQIQ people. Do you think that the... I mean, the Tories have been in power for a long time now and austerity is part of, part of the ideology, I would say, that you were just talking about before. Do you think that there's been a hostile environment for LGBTIQ plus people? It is harder to fight for funding for projects that do support LGBTIQ plus people. And I think that is because publicly a conservative government, I think for a conservative government, a lot of their voters and supporters and core group really don't care about us. And it's really hard for them, us to squeeze our fair share out of what is left for all these different services to scramble over. Um, Every time that we are posted by the Mayor of London, because he very like we are really grateful for the money that the Great London Authority gives us to run such a fantastic service. But every single time you'll have criticisms from people being like, well, what about this group or that group? Why do you think you're so special? You deserve this money. And it's really hard to convince people, no, we need this money because we are running a specific service that is helping people. And we have the receipts for that. But people really... And this is Labour supporters as well. So when you move over to Tory voters, supporters, how they view our service is they think that it's completely ludicrous that money's being spent on this. So yeah, it is really tough in a sector that has been so decimated for them to be LG, an LGBTIQ plus specialist service. 
it's really hard for us to yeah keep keep the funding up and keep support up definitely it's like that meme that you see on the internet where it's like you know more rights for me doesn't mean less rights for you it's not pie but then when we're talking about a pot of money and funding and when that's so squeezed as it is it does feel like people are fighting over pie and it shouldn't be the case because there's so many there are so many groups who are deserving and it doesn't somebody being helped doesn't impede on anybody else's rights in theory how can housing and homelessness services join together to create a better system as in do you think that there's too much separation between the way that these issues are dealt with and could they work better to accommodate people and to meet people's needs i'm not 100 percent sure i know that we the biggest cause of homelessness obviously is a lack of housing provision there just aren't enough houses and councils are very very protective over their housing stock and it's not it's to be expected when no new houses are being built um i i don't have the answer of how we could work better together but all i do know it is strenuous work when you're constantly fighting with people that are providing housing just to try and get someone into it um it's hard and but yeah i don't really know the answer i, I suppose i was thinking about we were talking about how you know, 3.2 million had been dedicated to housing homeless people during the crisis. And in terms of fixing that problem, what would that look like for you? What do you think can be done in the in the long term to help people? What could be done in the longer term is housing needs to be built. There needs to be more housing provision. That's number one. But also there needs to be more funding into services, not just like ours, but across the board that support people there could just be enough housing for everyone. But I don't think that works in terms of Tory ideology. So I, I, I really don't see, apart from more money for services, how, how else we would get to a point where there wouldn't be a homeless problem. I, I, the acknowledgement of housing being a human right, which it absolutely should be, and I think that's something that is never really going to be recognised by this government. £3.2 million really isn't a lot of money in terms of everything else that's being spent. So I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't think I have the answer. I think you do have the answer, Harry, because you're saying more money. There, there is an ideological problem here, isn't there? That, 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 that not enough money is spent on, on, the, on people, really. June is normally a time for pride celebrations around the world and parades have been cancelled um, in a lot of major cities because of uh, coronavirus. I wanted to talk about how you think it's important for people to still celebrate their sexuality and also talk a little bit about the queer house party that you've been running under lockdown, which is becoming a massive success. And I wanted to talk as well about the idea that traditional pride parades are often criticised for being over-commercialised. Do you think that it's important for people to find new ways to celebrate? Yeah, to celebrate their sexuality under lockdown. And do you think it's like a new opportunity to find new ways? Yeah. Um, I've always had a really tricky relationship with Pride, um, especially Pride in London, who I know really dislike me, um, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is ridiculous. And for me, Pride has always been a protest. And as much as it is about celebration of like how far we've come as a movement, there are people that have been left behind. And I worked in support services for people who were seeking asylum, who 
we are constantly fighting for them to be included in this parade. And last year, as part of a group of people that fundraised 10 grand almost to basically bring lots of queer people seeking asylum from around the country into London, pay for their transport, their hotels. Uh, we put on a huge party, which funded this whole thing as well, um, to make sure that they could um, just be visible. Um, these are people that have come from all over the world to seek safety in this country, which is their absolute right to do, and they get treated like absolute garbage by the Home Office. It's completely criminal, the... the treatment that they receive when they arrive and then for our community as well then just to erase them completely from our pride celebration that's not pride for me we fought really hard we missed the application deadline yes uh, last year um in pride 2019 because we're not the most organized group of queers and it's also this internal debate of we don't actually want to pay to be on your pride parade anyway but um we decided to put an alternative march at the back, which is what a lot of people are starting to move towards. It was a group of different grassroots organisations saying, we don't want to be part of your parade. We're going to march at the back. And in that group, you have people who are homeless and ex-homeless. You've got people from all around the world that were seeking asylum. So we're talking about really vulnerable groups of people. And when we went to march at the back of the parade, we were met by a line of police and pride volunteers, which was insane. There's lots of photos of us just being like, just being treated like we're criminals, just saying that we want to be able to highlight these issues. Every single group that was standing there was fighting for something that we should all care about as a community. And we were met by a line of police. And you have people that were really scared. And for good rights, they are. And that could be because of their treatment of police within their home country or even just the way that the state has treated them since they've arrived in the UK. I mean, people seeking asylum, if they mess up at all, if they get in trouble with the police, that could be the end of their asylum application and that can mean deportation. Um, and Pride in London did that. So yeah, I, I've got a long-standing history of either being at the front and taking it over or going at the back and shutting things down and kicking up a fuss. We, we Not just in Pride in London, but in general. And I think there has been such a move away from really commercialised Pride celebrations to small local events, which are funded by, I don't know, smaller local businesses that really actually care. Um, you have local acts. It's not relying on big names. A lot of the time, a lot of them aren't even queer. You've got Britney and Kylie who, like, don't get me wrong, love them. But it's like, why are you headlining... Or Ariana Grande, why are you headlining a festival that's meant to be... The whole point in Pride is it was a protest and I, we've really lost that and it would be okay if there was no one left behind but even at the moment the what's what's happening to the inter potential rolling back of trans rights in this country like th these are the things we need to be kicking off about um there is still a lot to be upset by oh, I could literally go on about this for so long I hate Pride also, prides just aren't accessible for a lot of people. And yeah, we, at the beginning of lockdown, me and my housemates, we started Queer House Party, which is being hosted on the Outside Project's virtual community centre. It is, the original idea is because a couple of us are DJs was to make a bit of cash and have some fun because we are, half of us are also frontline workers. We've got social workers and support workers in the house. So that was the original idea, but it's gained so much momentum because it is giving the sense of community and togetherness that we are missing during lockdown. I think for queer people, 
it's especially hard because we go to bars and clubs or whatever to see ourselves, see other people that we relate to and we feel just, I don't know. But yeah, it, it's definitely filling that gap. I think the other biggest thing that has come out of Queer House Party is just around accessibility. Um, and we're really, really striving now to make it as accessible as possible. And this starts with making sure that there's no visible alcohol containers on screen because people in recovery might want to come. But then we got a BSL interpreter, which is really, really important. And their name is Max and they're really cool. And they we able to pay them every week, which has made it a huge portion of like the queer community that have access needs now come to the party. And we get messages every week saying, I haven't been able to access a queer event in years and this is the first time and that can be because people are neurodiverse and really struggle to be out in such a busy environment if they're survivors of survivors or victims of sexual assault or abuse and that has happened in a club that might be a reason they don't want to go out anymore we also have um, someone on audio descriptions for people that are visually impaired. So we're really really pushing for this and I think after lockdown as well we're going to continue to put on parties that are accessible and also just led by the community. I think a big problem that we all have with Pride in London is they're more interested in big corporations spending lots of money and they're more interested in pleasing uh, big corporates that pay them for, to have this festival. And I always make the point of it's become this it's become a bit of a monster and it's only there to sustain itself. It's not there to benefit the community. It sort of is so expensive because all of these corporations are fighting to show that they have the biggest rainbow flag. But in reality, no one wants that. No one wants to march in a parade alongside BAE weapon systems who make literal bombs. Um, no one wants to march in a parade with... There's countless organizations in pride parades you just have to look through the list and it is obscene the type of corporations that we have to march against that don't care about anyone beyond the treatment if they have really good workplace policy for lgbtiq plus people apparently that means that they're the most brilliant people in the world but you can treat your queer staff members well and also not create bombs that are going to be dropped on people all over the world. And uh, there's a massive conflict there for me. And I, I'm never, ever going to be able to march in a parade um, alongside weapons manufacturers. I just, it, it, yeah, it's crazy. Um, I really hope that this self-sustaining monster of pride is coming to an end and we are moving back to traditional grassroots activist-led marches and parties that aren't just focusing on corporations it's exhausting i really don't like it <laughs> yeah i um i started working in the center of town um last year our, our our office moved to a different part of town and it's it's basically it's the strand where which is i think part of the the route march and and seeing the you know the big corporate banks and the you know, every single company who had a presence on that street changing their colours to to be to appear to be inclusive and yet the contradiction between that and like the levels of homophobia in society and you know that 
you know, just from speaking to friends that people don't feel like completely accepted by if they work in big companies, you know, um, it was really stark to me. And then by the same token, I've, um, I haven't been to Queer House Party yet, but I have, you know, live streamed some other DJ sets and things. And it's just like the first one I did and under lockdown, I'm thinking this is, this is perfect actually for lockdown because, you know, you can rave and party and whatever, but you, you know, you're at home. So I don't know, I'm 30. I've already stopped going clubbing. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it, it feels like there's a, there's a natural fit between sort of um, live streaming and that kind of thing. So it's, it's really, really good to hear that it's, that it's going so, that Queer House Party is going so well. Many people are talking about constructing a new normal after the pandemic. What for you would that look like? Thinking about homelessness and thinking about LGBT rights. I think, for me, the new normal would be the end of capitalism. Um, and I really... I really thought at the beginning, like, this is going to ruin the Tories. Um, And that was before... I I saw, just working in the sector, we had a lot more paranoia at the beginning about what this was going to do. And I saw the situation we were in now coming. And I thought, like, once we get to the point where we have the highest death toll in Europe and the second highest in the world, surely it will be like, right, let's hold this government to account because it is highlighting the decimation of services over the past 10 years, but also... The fact that they're asking workers to go back to work and use public transport and all these things that just makes them seem so out of touch because they don't realise what the real world is like. And Boris's approval ratings are still really high. And that, for me, is scary because we are against such a huge enemy. And I think it, that is what these past over 10 years now have been, is just we're not just fighting a government, we're fighting a government and a the media institution which basically props them up and it's hard and I really 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 hope there is a new normal after this and we don't forget and we don't just go back to the way things were but I'm not sure what that would look like I don't think that's my job to I just know that I really really hope something happens soon I've got family members who are I've got a family member who's a nurse an immediate family member who's a nurse and another one who's a care worker and it's I really hope the people that are clapping every Thursday at 8pm really realise um, what what these people are actually going through and what they actually want, which is just to be safe in their jobs and paid a fair wage. And even during a pandemic, they're not getting those things. And it makes me very angry. Um, but I don't know what else it would look like. I think at this point, anything is better. I really, really hope, and I, I, I do want to be more hopeful, but I think it's going to take everyone just realising that a lot of what has happened could have been avoidable. And I really hope that it makes people rethink the way that society is structured and how the most marginalised people are, the people that are being affected by this crisis and understanding the reasons for that, the socioeconomic reasons why it is majority uh, people of colour that are being hit hardest and uh, working class people that are being hit hardest. But I'm not sure if that will happen. I wanted to ask about your background and how you started working um, in kind of social care and support. How did you get into it? It's a tricky one. I studied criminology 
as um, an undergraduate and I went into it thinking it's a social science and thinking that I would learn one thing, but what I actually came out of it with is an understanding of structures in society that disproportionately affects marginalised groups. I did a lot of research and learning around immigration services in this country specifically and immigration detention and prisons and you're working with some of the most marginalised and vulnerable people ever and the treatment within institutions like the prison system or the immigration system. Um, Yeah, I just got a lot of anger from what I was learning. I think also... um, when I was 21, I had a pretty traumatic year and I think a lot of people that experience big traumas end up viewing the world differently and wanting to do something to not give back. But I just, I had a lot of anger and I needed to channel it somewhere. And for me, that was heading to the streets, number one, but also working in support. And I think a big part of what we do at The Outside Project is we're not just providing a service, we're also actively campaigning and kicking off to change the structures that are harming people. So I think those are two things that I'm really passionate about. There is the frontline work, which is so important, but then also channeling all of my anger into getting on the streets and kicking up a fuss about different things that I really don't like. Definitely. And it's it sounds like you've already worked in quite a few different campaigns. Um, are there any other campaigns you haven't mentioned yet, which you've you've been a part of? I've Yeah, I, I've basically worked alongside a lot of different groups that work in highlighting how damaging the immigration and asylum process are. There's an amazing group called African Rainbow Family headed up by Adaronke, who is like an inspirational campaigner and been through the system and was in the asylum process for 10 years. Um, and I've we also have a member of our team at the outside project called Cyprian, who runs their London branch, and they're all over the country. And I think working with them has really, really given me a lot of knowledge because they are led by people that have been through the asylum process themselves. So like insider knowledge and like what it is actually like, which is really important when we are campaigning is about, especially about issues that don't directly affect us. It's so important to work alongside people that are, have the lived experience from going through it. So yeah, African Rainbow Family is a big one and I adore them. I think they do incredible work. Have you read or watched anything that really inspired you to get involved in campaigns for change or that talks about any of the issues that we've talked about today? I think a big one for me was um, watching the film Pride about uh, lesbian and gay support, the minors. Um, it was a campaign during the when they wanted to shut the pits down. It was basically the treatment of minors by Tory governments and police and it was this idea of solidarity between different communities and the shared understanding of being marginalised and for the members of LGSM they weren't well received in mining communities at the beginning and they were just trying to fundraise and trying to get their money to these people but lots of people wouldn't accept it because it was coming from uh, at the time gay men and lesbians and how with persistence and a lot of hard work, those communities ended up coming together and then the miners ended up marching at the front of a London Pride with the groups. And like stories like that about solidarity, I think is really important, makes you realise that 
whilst as a community we are all in it together we have to also look outside of our community sometimes and see other groups that are struggling and I think that was a big realization for me and a big part of the activism that I do is it's it's all of us and we are all in it together and especially over the past decade and a bit um we are all being hit really hard so it's working together is the only way that we're going to get out of this I think definitely pride's a really good film I love it it's yeah it's amazing. How can people support you and what you do? People can support the Outside Project by just getting the word out there about what we do. I think we want more people in the community to know that you can come to us before you're in crisis. We also just always money helps. So we have a golden given page, which you can find on all our social media. Um, so drop us some cash. Um, it will help us carry on. And also we have a virtual community centre. The virtual community centre has socials every day for people that are in isolation. If you wanted to help out, if you're in a position to maybe host or just become a befriender, you can log in and just chat to people that are struggling in isolation. It's not a support role. It's more just like being being a, 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 like a, a friend, someone just to listen. The, the community centre is also where we um, run the house party from and just attending that and being another face on the screen of people that are coming would be great. Yeah, come and just come and see what we're doing. We also have a London LGBTIQ plus mutual aid group on Facebook. So you can search that and find it through the Outside Project's Facebook page. And... You can either sign up if you need help with anything or if you're in a position to go out and help other people, you can fill in a form and we can match you up with other people in London and sort of across the country now that are in need of support. Um, yeah, that'd be really useful. Yeah, I think that's a really nice place to end. Thank you so much for your time today, Harry. No worries. It's been really fun. <laughs> Future Heist is recorded and produced by me, Weena Neve-Smith, with original music by Benjamin Tassi, artwork by Fleur Beck, and sound editing by Gibran Farah. Ben Weaver-Hinks is our podcast consultant, and Charlotte Watts, our social media editor. You can find original illustrations for Future Heist by Charlotte on social media. Follow us at future underscore heist on Instagram and Twitter or future heist podcast on Facebook and YouTube. You can find a transcript for this episode on renathejournalist.com forward slash podcast. Special thanks to Chloe Vasegi. And if you like this episode, please subscribe and tell a friend.